Welcome to AEM Early Access, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. More people get their news and health information from social media than ever before. The COVID-19 pandemic has shown just how much social media information and misinformation can influence public health outcomes, but how does the public perceive health messages coming from physicians? Many physicians are now using social media as a means of communicating about medicine to the public. But are these messages effective? Are they perceived any differently than general public health messages from the government? And what if those messages are personal in nature? Physicians posting about what they've seen themselves during the pandemic, for example, does that make a difference? Today we're discussing a new article in AEM entitled, Emergency Physicians and Personal Narratives Improve the Perceived Effectiveness of COVID-19 Public Health Recommendations on Social Media, a Randomized Experiment. We have first author Dr. Rachel Solnick with us to discuss it. Dr. Solnick is an emergency physician at the University of Michigan Emergency Department and Health Services Research Fellow with the National Clinical Scholars Program. Her research focuses on issues of health equity, women's health, and public health interventions through the emergency department, and we are excited to speak with her today. Don't forget to read the full text of this article available on our blog at brownemblog.com. Dr. Solnick, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me and for your interest in this paper. So this study is, uh, to our knowledge, the first, I'm actually going to quote from your paper, the first large-scale, nationally representative, pre-registered, randomized experiment to directly estimate the effect of a physician versus federal official messenger and message content of simulated social media posts on individual perceptions, attitudes, and behavior. So congratulations, and it's actually a very interesting study that we're going to get to more in just a second. But first, um, what motivated you and your team to do this study? Like what what made you interested in whether a physician was more persuasive in messaging than a, a federal official using these media? Yeah, so this is something that I have been thinking about actually for quite some time in terms of social media and what role physicians can play as messengers. We do a lot of patient counseling when we're directly in front of the patients, but um, it's not really clear how much that actually matters from a less... um, individual relationship scenario. Um, And so actually, I was originally thinking about this um, way back when, when uh, pre-COVID days during the the hashtag um, stay in your lane business with um, the NRA and just like wondering, well, all these physicians are speaking out and is it making an impact? Like we we hope it will because we are seeing all of these um, patients firsthand. But um, I didn't get around to doing 
this sort of study at that point. And then COVID hits from out of nowhere. And it felt even more important to look into this question just because there were so many things going on from both like the policy level in terms of state activity restrictions and from the individual level in terms of how citizens were willing to comply to these health departments and um, states guidelines. Um, and then both just from a, actually from a personal level, just as a ordinary person existing in America. I also was, um, I was sort of understanding how people could be confused about what was going on early on in COVID. We were getting a lot of um, initially some hedging from official sources, and then the conversation changed to actually, this is something really serious. And I think that's caught a lot of people um, off guard. And then so out of what I felt was something of a information leaderless um, vacuum of like clear guidance on this, um, it a lot of misinformation sprang to fill in that void. And people were pretty confused um, of what they should be thinking about COVID. Um, and so like then I was thinking about how the physician could, you know, given their um, frontline experiences, be that guiding light to say, like, actually, this is really what's happening on the ground. And this is a story you should believe. And um, this really came home too, just from a, again, personal perspective. I was on Twitter one day and I saw this Twitter post from actually a radiologist. And he was talking about how one of his coworkers had died from COVID. And just the way that he framed um, the post and there was a memorial link to um, donate to his uh, family. It was just, it was incredibly moving. And even as a scientist and as a physician, I, I've read all of like the, at that point I had read all the things that I should be aware of in terms of the news. But for some reason, this like personal story really sunk um, deep into like my psyche about it and actually ended up um, uh, informing sort of the content for um, this uh experiment. So it was really just that confluence of wanting to see like empirically to see like, are we making the impact that we hope we're making and that we think that we should be able to make as um, having this particular role in society and um, wanting to put that um, personal experience uh, really to test it out to see if, the, if this was actually true. Great. So the objective of your study was to assess the effectiveness of COVID-19 public health messaging on Twitter when delivered by emergency physicians and containing personal narratives like you just talked about with that radiologist versus messaging delivered by federal officials with impersonal guidance. So first, you mentioned Twitter. Why, why Twitter in particular? I mean, you're on Twitter, I'm on Twitter, but for those who maybe aren't on Twitter, explain why this is a natural choice. So increasingly people in America are getting their news from non-traditional news sources. They're not like really reading the newspapers as much anymore. Um, people are often getting their news information from social media. Um, and after Facebook, Twitter is one of the most commonly used social media sources in the U.S. Um, this is something that we obviously saw from the past president was capitalizing on this as a platform to um, uh, 
speak directly to the public. And so um, I think that it's really important that uh, when we're trying to get in like public health messages across that we're meeting people where they are um, and really going to be able to speak directly to people is something that um, Twitter really facilitates well. So wanted to see how it works. And also, you know, it's only like just such a few sentences that you can accomplish in Twitter. And so it's interesting, like, can we even have an impact with just a few sentences? Um, so wanting to see, to test it out essentially in um, a simulation of, of real life there. All right. So, so walk us through the basics of how, how you set the study up. So we used a factorial design, um, which uh, allows us to more efficiently test different um, factors or different levels of two different exposures. And so the main interest was in whether the messenger and the messenger being the levels of either this federal official versus a physician, and also our interest in the message content and the levels there being this uh, impersonal sort of government speak kind of guidance versus this more personal, like, let me tell you about my friend who died kind of story. Um, so we have this just by two different exposures can test those four different levels um, by different combinations. Um, so we recruited participants from an online panel that uh, was quota based to be representative based off of age, uh, race, gen gender, and region in the U.S. Um, and we exposed that we randomized them to one of these four different combinations of um, simulated Twitter posts. Uh, so we showed them the Twitter posts and then we asked them essentially for the reactions based off of that, as well as a number of different sort of demographic questions that um, we then incorporated into our analysis. So I talked about how we designed our um, posts from the uh, personal physician standpoint, but then the, and, and this was also part of like the, my interest in doing this, but the content for the federal official posts in terms of their impersonal um, content was actually lifted directly from the White House guidelines on um, social distancing, something that had been mailed out in a postcard form to like 130 million households back when um, in the initial stages of um, COVID. So that became some of the content for the other side of the uh, Twitter post. So your primary outcome measures were A, uh, perceived message effectiveness, B, perceived attitude effectiveness, and C, behavioral outcomes, which were the likelihood of sharing or retweeting the post and writing a letter to the governor. So let's break these down one by one. So what, so PME, which is perceived uh, message effectiveness, what did that mean and how did you measure it? Yeah, so the outcome variables were gleaned from prior literature, and a lot has actually been done in the smoking cessation literature on how to convince people to uh, not smoke. And um, some of those outcomes, like this perceived messaging effectiveness, um, they have studied based off of um, smoking cessation ads. And so that one is essentially more of like the emotional knee-jerk reaction. So we asked on Likert scales questions of um, like how memorable they thought the post was, if it grabbed their attention, if it was powerful, if it was uh, meaningful, or if it was convincing. So these then collapse into one measure for the messaging um, effectiveness. In terms of this attitudinal effectiveness, um, wanted to take that like a little bit, a little step further. 
from this like initial emotional response to more of like, could this be then something that people took action on um, further along that chain? And so this attitudinal effectiveness, again, something that we modified from uh, smoking cessation literature was um, uh, we have people rate the effectiveness on a Likert scale of the statements of it, uh, that the post made them concerned about the health effects of lifting restrictions on public activity, whether it made the lifting of restrictions less appealing or whether it's uh, the post had discouraged them from supporting opening America up right now. I feel like the activation energy required to share a post uh, versus write a letter is very different. So were you just asking how likely they were in terms of behavioral outcomes? Were you just asking how likely they were to write a letter or did they actually have to do it? Yeah. Uh, so the reason we also decided to ask about writing a letter is because so much of this, um, the state variation in, in um, uh, physical activity restrictions, uh, it seems like followed at least initially by uh, some uh, political lines. And so it seemed like it was very important whether the population of that state would be supportive of these policy changes or not. Um, and that's, so that's why we took a little bit more of like a political bent to that. And also this was um, an idea we got from prior literature regarding support for immigration policies. We had seen one study that had looked at um, exposure to um, some convincing messaging and then seeing an impact on whether they would um, actually write a letter to support these immigration policies. So we had also um, tried to replicate that by actually giving them a blank uh, text box and telling them truthfully that we would send that letter uh, to their state's governor, which we did by the online submission forms. Um, so people actually, there was, um, some people would write like a few words, I mean, in terms of people who did it, and then other people wrote like a few sentences, um, a fair amount. Um, uh, so yes, we did ask them to write real letters. Hmm. All right. Um, so how about secondary outcome measures? What were you interested in? Yeah, a smaller one interest that we had, and this came from seeing that there was a, um, it was like a change.org style petition that was circulating from New York doctors to get New Yorkers to sign on to a pledge to socially distant. Um, and so we had this interest in whether pledging, uh, whether the exposure to the different Twitter messages would affect their willingness to pledge um, to say that they would try to socially distant. So you wound up with 2,007 participants um, who were consented but blinded to the study objectives. And it looks like you did have a pretty even split of males and females in a mean age of 45, which is, by the way, that's older than I thought it would be, to be honest. I don't know why. Um, maybe because it's just old people who use Twitter. <laughs> um, and let's see, 11% Black, 12% Hispanic uh, participants. So what other participant variables were you interested in and why? And how did you incorporate that into the study? Yeah, we asked a number of additional covariates um, with the idea that we would look into those later on to see if they um, potentially were mediators in people's, um, the effect that these messages had on um, people. And so, uh, especially given how 
unfortunately politicized this discussion about uh, state restrictions became. We dug a little bit into the politics of this. Um, there is this uh, group called All Sides that measures different levels of potential bias from media sources. And so we asked people where they got their news from. And then after that, we sort of ascribed um a sort of bias ranking to that exposure. We also asked about people's empathy level with the idea that, um, you know, they were exposed to this like personal story and perhaps that worked, uh, that was a, a more effective treatment essentially to people who are more empathic. Um, we also asked about sort of their idea of the trade-off between public health and economy, something that had been looked at in actually climate change literature on people's like willingness to um, supports action behind that. Um, we also looked at just general anxiety about coronavirus as well as uh, trust in um, federal officials, trust in physicians. Um, There's probably there was a few other variables we additionally incorporated, but those were sort of like the main things that we had hunches on that would affect. Oh, we also incorporated just based off of people's geographic data for which they entered the survey, um, what was going on in terms of um, COVID rates in their states. All right. So let's talk results. So what did you find about perceived messaging uh, effectiveness and the perceived attitude effectiveness? Yeah. So we first off um, analyzed the data in two different ways, which is recommended for factorial experiments. First, on like sort of their uh, exposure levels in terms of the four different combinations of federal, physician, impersonal, and personal. And then we also went back and then pooled the effects to get a um, more specific um, outcome for the, the different exposures. So first I'll talk about what it looked like at the, the levels, the four level analysis. Um, and so for perceived messaging effectiveness, this is where we saw like the biggest um, impact of the Twitter posts. And we saw that the physician's personal posts had a um, the biggest effect compared to the other groups being the federal personal and the physician impersonal. And this is, of course, comparing it to the federal impersonal as sort of the baseline. So we saw significant effects for um, the most uh, impact for physician personal, which was about like a medium size um, effect when we look at at it at a standardized scale. Um, we also still saw that the physician personal um, arm had the most impact for a perceived attitude and effectiveness, but this was like a slightly, slightly lower um, level of impact. And then for likelihood to share, again, we saw that the physician personal arm had the most impact, um, but this was slightly different than the messaging effectiveness and the attitude um, in that the uh, personal federal arm had no significant impact. So to then take a step back and look at this from like the pooled perspective, um, I think it's easier to understand that um, looking at the personal content compared to the physician content, we actually saw a stronger impact from just like the personal content. Um, and that was strongest for the messaging effects. Uh, but then conversely, when we look at this uh, likelihood to share, to essentially to retweet the post, um, the personal content did not matter anymore in terms of it did not have a significant effect and the physician messenger mattered more. This did have a, a small effect. And what about the um, behavioral outcomes and willingness to pledge to stay home? 
So the pledge, actually, I think, unfortunately, had a little bit of a ceiling effect on this, because by the time that uh, we had launched the survey, people were really pretty scared and were a lot of people were staying home already. And that's what we were pledging people to do. So about like 90 percent in all of and all the arms said that they'd be willing to pledge to stay home. And so we did not see any effects um, on that. In terms of the uh, behavioral outcomes, we also considered the uh, willingness to retweet the message as part of that. And as I mentioned, it, the physician messenger um, had more of an impact on, on that retweeting. And what about participant characteristics like political affiliation um, or race or age? Did that change anything? Oh, I'm sorry. I should also... Um, regarding the behavioral outcomes in terms of the willingness to write a letter supporting the restrictions, uh, we also did not see an effect um, across the different arms for that. Um, and then in terms of the impact of these other participant characteristics. So as I mentioned, we collected a lot of additional variables. And in these circumstances, we thought that the easiest way to assess for this without having sort of accidentally found something to be uh, some significance when it was really just by chance of these multiple comparisons. So instead of doing it that way, we use a causal forest, which is uh, something of a machine learning technique to see if there is any uh, treatment effect heterogeneity, in, which is to say that um, one group might have had more of an effect than another subgroup based off of these different covariates. Um, and so this automates the search for any of the treatment effect heterogeneity across all of the different covariate profiles. And um, we do show a couple of these graphs in the paper that we had thought a priori would be interesting and potentially related to whether the message mattered. Um, and I think it's worth at least just looking at like the uh, different um, groupings that we see, for instance, for political ideology. So this, uh, the way that we show the data, it orders the participants by the amount of treatment effect they received. And we do see sort of, a, it looks like there is some more of an effect for the liberal group. However, we did not find any actual significant effects across the political ideology, nor any of the other covariates um, that we looked at in terms of whether there was um, treatment effect heterogeneity. Excellent. Um, so are there any limitations of this study that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, so we used an online panel from um, Lucid, which is a marketing firm that also allows acad academicians to um, do survey experiments through it. Um, and part of that means that the um, the education levels of our participants were slightly higher than what is uh, what we see in um, census level data of uh, Americans who have access to the internet. Um, we did weigh that in and had done a sensitivity analysis to see accounting for that. If we did change our um, group to be more reflective of the um, American general um, demographics, we still saw pretty similar treatment effects. Um, other um, other things. Um, Let's see where I mean, these were people who were self-selecting and to be willing to take Internet surveys for money. And so that means that 
there might be something different about that group than just anybody on Twitter. But I do think that the people who are on Twitter are probably also more likely to be doing things on the internet in general. Um, other sim other limitations are this was a simulation experiment. Um, we did randomize people and they only saw one of the four different messages. So I feel like the the exposure was like pretty clear to them. But we don't know if this is actually something that if we did in real life Twitter, if we would see these same levels of impact. Interesting. So um, you mentioned the, uh, you know, hashtag stay in your lane um, dust up with the NRA. Uh, gosh, when was that last year? already been that long? Oh, it feels like ages ago at this point, right? <laughs> right? So, so, I mean, <laughs> a lifetime ago. <laughs> um, so I'm, I am going to ask you to editorialize a little bit here. Um, what role should physicians play in directly communicating with the public via these social media platforms? And how should the results of your study inform us in that? I, I'm really heartened by the results of our study to know that we now have empirical evidence to say that the presence of a physician on social media telling their personal story really did make an impact in terms of people's emotions to emotional response to the message, as well as like their attitudes on the message and even um, their willingness to reshare and amplify that message. And so I think that this is something we should really run with. Um, uh, especially in this past 2020, we, we did feel like we needed to sort of step it up as physicians, I think, on social media. And we've seen a lot of emergency physicians really do a great job of filling that void and talking directly to the public. Um, people like uh, Esther Chu and uh, Megan Rainey and Jeremy Faust. And a lot of um, physicians are helping to really translate both the data, but then also their lived experiences into things that can matter to people. Um, and I do think an important part of our study was also how important the personal side of that was. Um, and so I, I, I don't know if these results are specific only to this like pandemic or if these will also matter more for these, what I also consider to be public health crises, other things that like, for instance, violence that bring people to the emergency department. Um, but I am, I'm hopeful that um, when people have a better grasp of what's um, a real toll that's essentially these these things that are happening in America can take in terms of health outcomes, that that can be a really impactful, um, impactful story that we can share with people. So are you looking into this topic more or do you have any research in the pipeline about this? So I am very interested in public interventions um, that we can do from the emergency department. So much of what we see as emergency physicians are really essentially like the very downstream outcomes of different failed social policies. Mm -hmm. And I think the best we can do, and honestly what I do to try to keep myself sane is just continually beating that drum and being the advocates for our patients by way of speaking out against um, these things that we think are probably upstream to the problem, the health problems that we see show up in the ER. Um, for me personally, um, I am shifting more into other areas of transmissible diseases. Mm -hmm. And so I am eventually going to be looking into 
how we can affect um, high risk sexual behaviors from the ER. Uh, I think that's something that was highlighted to me in terms of um, COVID was just like how um, these behave, how, how people's behaviors can really impact health outcomes and how we can better talk to people about behaviors in a way that keeps like their, their health in mind. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming to talk with us about this article on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Solnick would like to acknowledge her study co-authors, Keith Coulter, Grace Chow, Ryan Ross, and Gordon Todd for their contributions to this research, as well as the National Clinical Scholars Program at the University of Michigan's Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation and the University of Michigan Department of Emergency Medicine for their support during this project. Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access. The full text of this article is available on our blog at brownemblog.com, open access for a limited time. Check out all of our podcasts on iTunes. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.